0: One important item is mom had never taught me how to cook. (laughs) So I'm just clueless what two eggs over light look like, taste like, and how you can take what's in a shell and make it over light. So I go into the kitchen and I scramble the eggs and burn them very badly. But, you know, he's in love. He eats scrambled eggs and they're burnt, but it's okay. We're in love. The bells and the whistles. Second day, he says, "Uh, dear. Uh, I think this morning instead of scrambled eggs, I'd like two eggs over light. And so we get burnt scrambled eggs again. I'm just (laughs) ignoring his request. Third day. He's not quite as, you know, sweet about it. Because some of the whistles dying and some of the bells have quit ringing. And he said, "Uh, dear, I want two eggs over light for breakfast. He gets burnt scrambled eggs. Fourth day. He said to me, what do I have to do to get eggs over light? I said, you have to cook them. Do you think I married you to be your short order cook? What do you think my life is flipping eggs in a skillet for you? And all of a sudden, the going got rough. <laughs> Layla Jane appeared in the marriage, you know. And our, our Layla Jane was eggs and cooking. Just, just rough, rough going when I left the Methodist church and joined the Pentecostal church. A lot of bells and whistles. I thought, thank God I'm through with the dead Methodists and these lively Pentecostals. And dear God, what life. <laughs> you know, I thought, "I don't know if I want to live with these people. And the bells and the whistles became rough going. 1979, 77 rather, God called Jean and me into full-time ministry. A lot of bells and whistles, but the going got rough. And see women, we have to deal honestly with you about harvest, because harvest is not something young women can really talk about, because harvest happens over a season of time. Harvest really happens in a a longevity of time. And from the beginning, of a word of God, a move of God, an experience of God in your lives, until the completion of it, at the end of your lives, is a lot of rough going. And, you know, we should be concerned about people who are not born again, certainly. That's the call of God upon our lives, that we are to be witnesses to those who are lost. But the real sadness of my heart is that I hang out with church people. I hang out with women like you because I I like women, I like God's people. I like to hear your stories. And I have been Spirit-filled 37 years, born again 15 years prior to that. So I've been a Christian for uh, 52 years. And all these years I've been in church with God's people And it bothers me to see people encounter rough spaces and just sort of give up the program, sort of lay down their destinies, uh, just sort of belly up when the going gets rough because Jesus has already told us in the world we will encounter tribulation. Uh, there, There will be spiritual warfare There will be problems with people. There will be negativity of the world. And none of us will ever experience harvest until we understand that. Because we come to conferences like this and people like me just, you know, which we should do, just take our paintbrush of words and paint these glorious pictures uh, delivered and healed and anointed and sanctified. But you've got to go back and live that out. And you've got to do it in the midst of negativity. You've got to do it in the midst of a satanic attack. And so the the spirit-filled world's just full of women like us who are just on the shores of do-nothing because they've never learned how to handle rough going. I want us to consider the Apostle Paul. He's one of my favorite New Testament characters because Paul started from a... Real negative place. He was a religious zealot. He was a man that just thought he had God all figured out. And When Christianity appeared on the scene, uh, Paul just was dedicated to wiping out the name of Jesus. All of those who call themselves Christians. And on the Damascus road, he met this blinding light of glory and out of the light, a voice spoke and said, I am Jesus Christ. And this religious zealot said to this voice, what do you want me to do? And spent the rest of his life doing it. And it's an amazing story to me that he didn't have to go through 13 years of pastoral counseling, nine years of inner healing, 25 years trying to forgive his daddy and his mother, uh, just all these things that we go through because, Gene, my husband pastors, and I know what you're like, We bring you into the counseling office just to get enough victory to attend Wednesday night service. You know, that's just the way God's people are. And and here's this man that just walked into this destiny with God. And I think he's worthy of my attention. He's worthy of your attention. He is an example to be followed. And he's a man that I've studied through the 37 years of my spirit-filled life. There was an epistle he wrote, we know it as the book of Philippians. And he wrote to the Philippian uh, church about 60 something AD. At this time he had been a a Christian for 30 years. And what struck me about the Philippian uh, epistle is Paul wrote it while he was a prisoner in Rome. And 19 times in this epistle he talks about joy. So I understood here was a man who was in the midst of great negativity. But there was a joy in his life. He, he really wasn't bellying up. There was a, a joy there. And he wrote things like rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Because he came to understand something about life. And I want to teach you that because I do not believe it does you any good to come to conferences if you cannot go home and live with some victory, if you cannot go home and confront the tribulations of your lives. It does you no good to come here and dance and listen to messages and be prayed for. Now, Paul, writing to the Philippian church, said this, and I want you to hear what he says. He said in Philippians 1, verse 12, I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Now, here was this man who had a beginning, and if anybody had a beginning that had bells and whistles with God, it was this man, a light from glory, a voice speaking out of the light, God knocking him to the ground off of his horse, I mean, who wouldn't like that? Wouldn't you like to go home with that kind of experience? That this light came into this room A, the pearl room, knocked me out of my chair and spoke to me? I mean, that, that's the bells and the whistles. And he comes to the end, and his testimony is, I kept the faith, I fought the fight, I finished my course. But now he fills in the details from beginning to end. He said, I want you to understand something about the things which have happened unto me. So here is a man moving toward his harvest. And for my interpretation of the harvest, I want it to mean the completed end of everything God intends to do. The completed end of every prophetic word God has ever spoken. The end, the harvest, where the culmination of God's promises are finished. And Paul had that testimony. I finished my course. And in finishing, I kept the faith. But there was a fight. I had to fight to do this. And now he tells us uh, about the things which had happened to him. Now, the Apostle Paul was a Jewish man who lived in the Middle East. He sort of traveled up and down in the area of Palestine, up into Antioch, uh, over into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He just sort of was in this Middle Eastern area But he had this intense desire to go to Rome. And when you read in between, you know, uh, his epistles, you will find that he always stated that he was supposed to go to Rome. So in his journey with God, Rome was this place where God intended him to be. Rome was a divine destiny, if you please. It was on God's map for this man's life. So in Acts, he would say this, in Acts 19, verse 21. After I have been to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. So here he is testifying that he's going to see Rome. Then he writes his most famous, outstanding epistle, we know it as the book of Romans, to the Christians in Rome. And the whole intent of that Roman epistle was to prepare them for his coming. And he gives them his theology of the gospel. And he says to them, I'm coming. I'm coming to see you. Here was something God had laid on his heart. Here was something God wanted him to do. And so he said to the Roman church, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are Rome also. So here's this spiritual destination. Now in our journeys with God, God has these places where he wants to take us. It may not be a Rome, but God has your life planned by his divine hand. We call it calling and purpose. And God has mapped out the courses. And we all have our, our roams, The places where God intends us to be, doing what God has anointed us to do. The places that are prophetic in our lives, prophetic in the sense that this is God's choice and not my own choice. See, this, this destination of Rome, But I want you to understand, Paul did not have smooth sailing getting to Rome. He, he just didn't get there the way he thought he was going to get there. Now this is something we have to deal with because somebody speaks a word to us, yay, thus saith the Lord. Somebody preaches a message and we wave our hankies and you know, get the goosebumps. But I'll tell you, the way you think you're going to get there is not the way you're going to get there. You know, we all sign up. But it's not going to work the way you think it's going to work. So the Apostle Paul eventually did arrive in Rome. He wrote the Philippian letter from Rome. Now at the beginning, he thought he would go there as a preacher. But he went there as a prisoner. That's how he went there. He was a prisoner. They actually arrested him in Jerusalem. And he was caught in the middle of this religious controversy with Jews and this political controversy with Rome. And the man was kept in prison for years. And finally, uh, it was decided that they would just, uh, you know, send him to Caesarea and they sent him there for two years. He stayed in prison in Caesarea. Now the man got Rome on his, you know, spiritual map, but he's in Caesarea and he's being held a prisoner for two years. And finally, Paul appealed to Caesar because he was part Roman, and he said, I have a right as a Roman citizen to be tried, and they put him on a ship as a prisoner to ship him to Rome. And you would think he'd say, well, goody-goody gun drops, I'm finally on a ship to Rome, but the ship they put him on got embroiled in a hurricane at sea. And the final word of the hurricane is that the whole ship was destroyed. And Paul and 275 fellow travelers are in the water swimming for their lives. And the only reason they were all saved is because of this little one man, Paul, who had a visitation from an angel that said, I'm going to save you because you've got to go to Rome and I'm just gonna give the other 275 grace to be saved with you. One time I was invited to speak somewhere and my airplane was one of these little silver bullets, you could hardly call it an airplane. It was one of those you can hardly stand up on, and I'm a short woman and I'm bent over to get on it, and I'm sitting in the back tail section, had 18 total seats, that's how small this airplane was, All the seats were filled with men, except for one woman in the front. There was not even a door over the pilot's area because this was before terrorism. There was just a little curtain there. That's how small this airplane is. We take off for my destination. We encounter a storm. And that little airplane is being tossed around like popcorn in a popper. We are dropping 100 feet at a time. And that plane is rattling and shaking And when that happened, every one of us turned pale white. Even every man turned pale white. And we're holding on for dear life. The woman in the front of the plane started screaming, Dear God, we're going to die. Dear God, we're going to die. don't want to die. Dear God. And the man across the aisles patting her on the shoulder and we could see the pilot through the flapping curtain looking back at her. Now I'm in the back of the plane and I don't enjoy the journey any more than she does. But if I could have gotten up, I would have said this to her, sister, you might as well relax because we're not going to die. I have a meeting tonight at 7 o'clock, and I'm the sole speaker. And this little plane's going to get through this hell and high water, and I'm going to be in my meeting at 7 o'clock. I'm on divine assignment, and you might as well just be blessed. You're on my airplane in the middle of this storm. So, Paul was, you know, in this ship, and 275 people were on his ship, and they were blessed. Well, you'd think, you know, That's bad enough, you've been a prisoner for years. And finally, they're shipping you to Rome and he probably thought, well thank God, I'm finally getting here to Rome. And now the ship's destroyed. He lands on an island called Malta and the poor man's just freezing to death because he's been in the ocean swimming. And when he uh, lands on the island, they decide to build a fire to warm themselves up and a snake bites him, a snake bites him. So here's this man on this journey and he's going to Rome and all these things happen. And when he gets to Rome, he is chained to a soldier, a Roman soldier for 24 hours a day. They change the Roman soldier every eight hours, six to eight hours. And he live, lives in Rome. And here's a man that's on divine destiny, a course with God. He has an assignment And his assignment is Rome. But he didn't get there easily. He encountered negativity. And we all encounter that kind of negativity. Women, if you want to be anointed of God, you have to deal with this. In the world, you have tribulation. If you want want to be used by God, you, you have to deal with this that there is just the negative flows of life, there is the satanic work of an evil kingdom that desires to see God's work cease in you. And so many people quit when the going gets rough. I could give you a list of churches that stopped because the going got rough, of pastors who resigned because the going got rough, of women like you who come to meetings like this and began with great glory but never pressed through the, the rough going. And here was the Apostle Paul. And he had promise, he had expectation. He thought that he was going to, you know, just get to Rome and start a church or bring these Christians together. And it just didn't happen the way that he thought it was going to happen. Now, we all have those testimonies. See, if I took time today, I could just tell you About the things which have happened. In my walk with God, I I haven't just floated here. I have fought very, very hard to come to 67 years of age and be where I am. And I wanted to come through intact, not bitter, not resentful, not mad at somebody who did something to me 10 years ago, but focused on what God had for me. See, these these things that that happen. And you might as well settle it up front. You've got it all worked out in your mind how you think it's going to be, and it's just not going to be that way because there's just this flow of flesh, the flow of people, the flow of the devil, the flow of the world, and it makes for rough, rough going. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I came to the Holy Spirit without really knowing anything about the Holy Spirit. I had been a Christian for 15 years, but in my Methodist church, they just didn't teach us a lot about the Holy Spirit. And my husband was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and he came home speaking in tongues, which infuriated me. I thought, this is not a Methodist thing to do. And uh, in as loud a voice as I could, I told him what I thought of him and Pentecostal people and the whole ball of wax. But because I had acted so ugly toward him, God convicted me and uh, I began to read what the Bible had to say about the baptism with the Holy Spirit and speaking with tongues and found out my husband was right and I was wrong. And God just backed me against the wall and so you know I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, March the 25th, 1969. I was the first person I ever heard speaking other tongues and God, put us in a Pentecostal church. We left our Methodist church and that pastor is still our pastor today, even though my husband pastors, he remains on the board of our ministry. And something burst in me. I was 30 years old when I was baptized in the Spirit. I had spent 15 years as a do-nothing Christian. Do you know what a do-nothing Christian is? We just sort of go to church and put our checks in the offering plate and Uh, We can teach Sunday school because they give us a quarterly to follow, you know. But I felt I was not effective for God. And I really did want a life that when I came to the end of it, that I could look back over it and see that my life had counted. You know, I I just looked down the corridors of of the years and I thought, I want my life to count. I, I just want it to mean something. So I began to really seek my destiny. And God spoke to me through uh, really a prophet in our church. Uh, Brother Mac was just one of these weird guys. He was cross-eyed, and when he began to prophesy, his finger, you know, would start shaking, but his eyes were crossed, so you never knew if he's prophesying over here or over there, so everybody just kind of waved their hands. And He had always had spit that was rolling out his mouth. So when the spit would roll out, he would, you know, suck it back up in his mouth. So that was kind of the way his prophecies went. But one night he began, and I was sitting in the middle of the congregation, and he called my name and called me up and prophesied my life. He really did. He prophesied my life, told me that I was going to travel around the world. I was going to to travel from coast to coast, border to border. In this nation, I would go across the seas. I was just a little stay-at-home mom with two boys. Knew nothing about the Holy Spirit. But that prophetic word just stirred destiny in me. I thought, dear God, uh, this is what I want. I want to press toward that. So here I am. I know zero about nothing. Can you you understand you can be baptized in the Spirit and know zero about nothing? So about this time, my husband and I, even though we've been in this Pentecostal church, we know nothing about being Pentecostal, and we went to a little prayer group. Just a little circle of people sitting in a circle, praying, sentence prayers. We were late for the prayer group. So we slipped in, our two little chairs waiting on us, we sat down. And they're praying, you know, in sentence prayers. So we'd bow our heads listening to the sentence prayers. One would pray another would pray. All of a sudden a man across the room stood up and spoke in a foreign language. Now I majored in foreign languages in college so I opened my eyes and I thought well who is he? And I listened to him a minute and I thought well he must be a missionary from some foreign country. So I'm listening to him to see if I can recognize the language and then he sat down and It was quiet a minute, and then this woman right here stood up and spoke in English. And I thought, oh, this is his interpreter. This is his translator. So after the service, we're over in the corner doing refreshments, and I go up to the translator. And I said, I would like to meet the foreign missionary that's in the service. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, the foreigner, the the missionary, that, that man that, you know, is from a foreign country. And she looked around and said, what are you talking about? And I said, that man that spoke in that foreign language during our prayer service. And she pointed to him. She said, do you mean him? I said, yes. She said, he's not a foreigner. He's from Alabama. I said, I was born in Alabama. Nobody talks like that in Alabama. And she said, well, uh, honey, that was kinds of tongues. That was one of the gifts of the Spirit. And I just said, the what? And she said, don't you know anything? I said, no, I didn't. I didn't know anything. She said, there are nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. She said, you don't know that? I said, no. I had never been told this. I'd just been baptized in the Spirit a short period of time. She took me to 1 Corinthians 12, said, here they are. And what he did is right here, kinds of tongues. And I said, well, what did you do? She said, right here, interpretation of tongues. I said, who can do this? She said, well, right here. Anybody the Holy Spirit wants to use. Now, I want the Holy Spirit to use me. See, isn't that what I've already prayed when the prophet crossed his eyes and gave me that word from God? Wasn't that what I said? Lord, I I want to be used from God, you know? So, I mean, I I thought, glory. I, I can be used in gifts of the Spirit. And I said, I can do this. She said, yeah, if God wants you to. So, I go home volunteer. This is bells and whistles, women. I mean, i volunteer. And I said, now, God, next time you want to do that, I'm your girl. Right here, God. I want to be used in gifts of the Spirit. And so you know how God is. He hears our volunteers, and he writes it down. But then he waits a long, long time until we forgot the bell, the whistle, or we even volunteered. So months later, I'm in a Bible study in a church. And this church had pews that had these end pieces that rose up like this above your head, real ornate pews. And I'm right here in the center aisle about halfway back. The man of God is standing up here preaching, uh, just like I'm preaching. And about halfway through his message, this whole scenario of that prayer meeting, that man speaking in tongues, that woman and I having that conversation and my volunteering came back to me. When it did, my hands began to shake. I broke out in a cold, cold sweat. My heart began to pound and I thought, oh dear God, he is going to use me in this Bible study. Now, hear me women, you have to, you have to understand this. I, had, I wanted destiny. And I volunteered, and now God is ready to use me. So I sat there and thought about it and resisted it and rebuked it and prayed over it, and the man's still just teaching. And finally, I just decided I would obey God. And I was about to stand up and interrupt this man because nobody's ever taught taught me you shouldn't interrupt people. You know, nobody's ever said that to me, but the Holy Spirit Witnessed to me, I was to wait until he got through with his message. So I sort of settled back down, sweat pouring off of me, my hands shaking, my heart pounding. He finished the message and this is what he said. Well, the Lord has something to say to us. Let's see what the Lord has to say. And everybody bowed their head. And the Holy Spirit said to me, now. Now here's see, this is this is not the way I thought it was going to work when I volunteered. I want you to understand this. I'm gonna reach destiny, but I'm not gonna go the path I thought I was going to go. Uh, when I volunteered, I just thought, you know, it was really gonna be kind of smooth and slick and with a lot of, you know, people going, ooh, ah. And you know, just some kind of badge that would come over me, you know, a tongue talker, you know, gifted woman. That was my vision of it all. But here it is in actual reality. So I was on the end by this big piece that came up off that, that uh, podium, of uh, that pew. And when I stood up, I stepped out to the aisle and I was so afraid that my knees were doing this. Just, you know, knocking. Those in the back can't see, but I mean literally knocking. And I felt I had no strength in my legs. So what I did is I wrapped my arm around that big piece that, you know, came up like this, and I kind of held on to this pew with my knees knocking. And, you know, I'm out here in the aisle like this, my legs. So I opened my mouth to speak in tongues, and my heart is pounding so hard that I had no breath to say words. I don't know if you've ever been like that. So my message in tongues, my step into destiny, went something like this. And my little knee, knocking, knocking. So I did it again. And when I did that, everybody went into the watch and pray mode. That means you open one eye and look around, but keep the other one closed. You know? That was the way I used to pray with my sons. I'd say, I'm going to pray, but I'm watching with one eye, so you better behave. So everybody in there is watching and praying. And looking at me out there in the aisle, speaker included. And they were looking at me not with, you know, great excitement and anointing, but like they thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. I mean, you know, I have just genuinely thought I was a heart you know, having a heart attack. And so I just do this for several times. <sighs> <sighs> and finally, here's the way my message in tongues went. Uh, See, see co, see me, 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 see me, and then I fell back in the pew and my friend picked up the bulletin and started fanning me, because every, of clothing I had on was drenched with sweat and some little woman in the back or man, I don't remember who stood up and interpreted that little pitiful (laughs) message in time. It was pitiful. (laughs) But I came to understand something. It really is not by might. It really is not by power. It really is by the anointing of the Spirit of God. I understood anointing that day. I understood calling that day. I'll tell you something just straightened out in me that day because I've I've understood destiny from that point on. That God gives you this word and you volunteer and you sign up. And then women like you will come up to me, you know, I've done my thing and pointed my finger and prophesied. And then you'll line up tonight and say, uh, June, uh, we really do want to prophesy like you do because today, I've been doing this 37 years, I can do it like melted butter. I mean, I can use these and thous and, I know big words, Michelob. It's not Michelob, it's uh, Ichabod. <laughs> Michelob's beer. <laughs> Woman got mad to church one time, stood up and said, uh, The Lord said he's written Michelob over this building. <laughs> she meant Ichabod. <laughs> God's not here. So, you know, I just know how to do it. I put the sentences together. So you line up and you say, Well, we want, we want to do that. Now, hear me the great numbers of the body of Christ are not gifted. Just not gifted people. Looking to somebody like me, maybe in the service tonight, to have a word of God, a healing, a sign, a wonder. But we're just not really gifted in mass because we just don't understand how, how to get there. So I tell women like you here's the way it works now somebody gives you a word and you volunteer, and God will see your hand raised. God will see everyone over here wave your hands and say, We, we want the harvest. We want to be used. We we want God to do what God wants to do. And God will write that down. Months later, after the bells and the whistles are gone and you're just walking with God, you'll have to step in to what God wants for you. And you'll have to find you a pew that has a big piece on the end of it, and you'll have to hang on for dear life. Because you just have to know it doesn't always go the way you thought it was going to go. Uh, Sometimes there is just rough, rough going. And you cannot let these things that happen defeat you. Now every one of us have had things that happen that really weren't in God's plan, weren't in God's program. We heard Barbara talk today about sexual abuse. That wasn't in God's plan, that's not God's program, that's the work of hell. Some of you are divorced and you didn't intend to be, you didn't mean to be. It's just those things that happen. My youngest son, Mark, was married. His wife, spirit-filled woman, was killed by a drunk driver. And I do not believe that was the will of God. I do believe she died before a time. I can't understand it, I don't try to explain it. It's just the things that happen. But what we cannot do is let those things that happen drive us back. See, we have to keep going forward. You will encounter rough going, but the good news is, Jesus said, when you encounter tribulation, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So you will overcome what's trying to overcome you. To put it in words that you understand, you'll last longer than the storm will last. You'll make it to the end, even though the devil doesn't want you to. Now the second thing Paul said about our, our lives in the midst of negativity is in Philippians verse, chapter 2 verse 4. He says, look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Now this is very important because if you're going to really be women that God can use and women of destiny, and women who achieve the harvest, then what you're going to have to do is listen to what Paul says. He says, do not look on your own things. Now to put that in a language you understand, Paul said you're thinking too much about yourselves. You need to get yourselves off of your mind and begin to consider other people. Now, that is a real true fact because when God began to usher me into what God was calling me to do with my life, God began to focus me on something other than myself. Now, I was a high-tempered woman. Uh, I I used temper to manipulate and control my husband. I was a woman that had... uh, a religious kind of spirit. I could play the church game and pretend to be a good little Christian woman when behind the doors of my house, I was just a high-tempered, self-centered, selfish, demanding woman. And God knew that about me, but yet what God did is God began to focus me on something beyond myself. And God began to focus me on my, destiny, my calling, my purpose in God. And in doing that, in walking that out, God dealt piece by piece, step by step, with these things in me that were really hindering me. Because I find if we think about ourselves all the time, that's all we'll ever have is self. It's very selfish to think about yourself all of the time. Now, I was born with this baby fine thin hair. It came from my daddy and from my mother. And I'm not going to tell my hair stories today, but I have a lot of hair stories because I've tribulated with my hair. And the one thing I would change about my appearance is hair. I want hair you throw around like those girls on television. I want hair you can do this to and it would look good when you do it. That's the hair I want. I have baby fine thin hair. My sister has it too. We call it kitty cat hair. (laughs) So if you've ever touched a kitty cat, that's the kind of hair I have. Now the problem with my hair is I have a cowlick right here in the back and it separates right here in the crown and this part of my hair falls this way and this part of my hair falls this way. So if you look at me from behind you often see this big white eye that stares at you from right here and it's my ball spot. And I really tribulate over that ball spot. I spend a lot of time looking backward because of my ball spot. Well, one day I was a speaker in a meeting, and I was one of several speakers, like I am here. And uh, they had the speakers on the front row, and I'm down there with them, and they're videotaping this and putting the speakers on the screen so the people in the back can see. The speaker leaves the podium, comes down there where we are, and walks up and down, and I'm looking at her on the screen, and all of a sudden, they begin to pan her, and they pan the heads of the speakers, not not our clothes, just the heads, and all of a sudden, I see this big white eye (laughs) staring out from the head of a speaker, and I thought, dear God, my ball spot's showing, and they're broadcasting it all over this auditorium. So when the camera moved down away from me, I did this real quick, you know, trying to look spiritual, like I was doing some spiritual, you know, intercession or something, and trying to cover that ball spot. And then I set up, when the camera came back by, I thought, no, I didn't cover it up, so I bent over and did it again. When the camera came back by, I had this big piece of hair that was stuck <laughs> way up here, and I thought, well, now I've got to get this thing down. And I'll tell you, I didn't hear a word that speaker said. All I did, all through the service, was fool with this stupid, stupid bald spot. It consumed me. Now, we all have bald spots. (laughs) Those things that we can just spend the rest of our lives trying to handle. We can just spend the rest of our lives trying to figure it out. Those things that just stare out of our lives like big old eyes. And Paul said, you've just got to get yourself off your mind. Now, hear hear me, women. The problem to you is to find purpose beyond yourselves. Now, God... God began to put me into ministry, and the way I began to fulfill destiny is that God told me I was to use my home, and I was to invite women to come to my home for a Bible study. This was at the beginning of the charismatic renewal, and in those days, you know, for people like me to speak in tongues, it was highly unusual. And there were just a lot of women in the world that just didn't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't go to Pentecostal churches. And God said to me that I was to use my home, and my home was going to be the place where God would send these women. God witnessed me, had given me that home for this reason. I knew God had given Jean and me this home. So in 1971, I, I, in obedience to God, held my first Bible study. The Lord had told me I could not invite anyone to come, that he would send women by the Spirit. And two days before I was going to begin, I was real nervous about that because I thought, how can you have a Bible study and not invite anybody? I'm gonna look like a fool, you know, having a Bible study and you can't invite anybody. And on Tuesday, before I began on Thursday, my friend called and said, what are you doing on Thursday? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm teaching a Bible study. And she said, I didn't know you did that. I said, well, I do. You know, you don't have to tell people. You don't know what you're doing. I just said, well, I do. She said, can I come? I said, I think I can squeeze you in. Just come right ahead. So she comes and brings 10 people. And that was the beginning of the Bible study. I taught it for nine years until I went into full-time ministry and Jean and I left Alabama for Georgia. That was 1980. 73 women would come every week to my home to a Bible study. Over 1,000 women were born again, spirit-filled, healed, and delivered when I obeyed God and began to teach a Bible study in my home. Uh, It was just incredible. Even my neighborhood was impacted by it. They would, you know, because I went to my neighbors and I said, you know, every Thursday morning i have a Bible study and uh, we won't park in front of your house if you don't want us to. And so I'd get to tell them what I was doing. Even some of the neighbors ended up coming. It just was a mighty thing God did. But you know what happened is all of a sudden, I really couldn't pray about me anymore because I got these women. I'm having to pray about these women. I'm having to, you know, uh, minister to these women. And I'm having to think about these women. And what it did is it took my life off of self and put my life on purpose. And when I began to focus on purpose and began to walk out destiny, self was changed from glory to glory. See, we can just spend our lives going to conferences. And how many know you can be spirit-filled 37 years like I am today and still have issues you're dealing with? Have your bald spots that you've been able to, to do nothing about? So you have to take the focus of your life off yourself. And you, you need to put it on other people. And when you do, your negative things will, will be handled. The Apostle Paul said this to the Philippians, but what things were gained to me, I counted these things as laws for Christ. I pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now this was a man that stayed real focused. I pressed toward the mark. He said to the Philippians, "Uh, this one thing I'm doing, I forgot what's behind, I'm reaching into what's before, but right now it's this one thing. It's this one thing that I am doing. And he was a man who could stay focused on that because life just has all of these details. So you've just got to, you've got all of these details. And you begin to walk out what God has for you and you've got the details of, family, you've got the details of church, you've got the details of self, and we encounter strife, we encounter unforgiveness, we, we have problems here, we have problems there, and these details will just cause you, rather than do the one thing that God has told you to do, you'll begin to focus on all of this. And details will just drive you crazy. This other stuff that goes on all around us. And you have to walk with the plan of God by letting God handle the details of your lives. See, God can do it. If you find God's purpose, God will handle your details. God God showed me how to serve God and be a mother and to be a mother who raised two boys who would serve the Lord. Just the details of life. Now, my daddy was a man that, just details drove him crazy. He wasn't a Christian who he was 72. And he died when he was 78. And Dad moved to Georgia with my mother to live near us for a while. Now the problem with Dad being in Georgia is he was, you know, in his latter years near death. And Daddy had a cemetery plot back in Alabama where he had been born. It was a family plot. His mother was buried there. His daddy was buried there. It was just one of these Southern things, you know, Southerners by the land and the whole family's buried there. Well, Dad had a little plot in that cemetery. Mom had her plot there. But Dad is now living in Georgia, and he's near the end of his life. So one day, Dad comes to me and says, uh, you know, I, I've just really been thinking about it, and I'm kind of concerned about it. And I said, what, Daddy? And he said, well, I've been thinking about when I die and by this time he was a Christian, I said, well, Dad, what is it about when you die that bothers you? And he said, well, I've been thinking about If I die here in Georgia, my cemetery plot's in Alabama, and I don't know how I'm going to get my dead body from Georgia (laughs) to Alabama. Because Daddy had called the funeral home, and at this time, uh, it was around $500. I don't know what it is today, but Daddy thought that was a lot of money to transport his dead body. And Daddy said to me, I don't want to give the funeral home $500. And I said, well, Dad, just don't worry about it. It'll all work out. But Daddy just couldn't let this thing go. So he came back to me. He said, you know, I've been thinking about this, about me dying and how to get my body back to Alabama, and I think I figured it out without paying any money. And I said, what, what is it, Daddy? He said, well, you know, Gene, Gene is my husband. He says, Gene has that van." And he said, I want Jean just to throw my dead body in the back of that van and take me to Alabama. And I said, Daddy, it's a criminal offense to ride over state lines with dead bodies in the back of a van. And my husband would be on the news in prison because he's riding around with your dead body in the back of a van. And Daddy said, well, nobody will even know I'm in there. And I said, well, Daddy, by the time you die and we get you in there and... Gene has to stop and pump gas, you'll be smelling bad. And people will smell you and they'll know that you're in the back of the van and call the police. And Daddy said, well, maybe you're right. So, now this is a true story. It's absolutely true. Daddy comes back the next third time. He said, well, I think you're right. I shouldn't be in the back of that dead van. But he said, I really wonder if there's some way you and Jean could... Put me in the back seat and strap me in and put a baseball cap on me, and nobody didn't know I'm dead. They just think I'm, you know, riding back there. I said, Daddy, just die and let us just take care of this. Just forget it, Daddy. Just forget it. Well, Dad's finally on his deathbed. And Daddy never liked Pentecostal charismatic people. He adored my husband, but he didn't like long services. Daddy didn't like all this singing we did where we sung forever and waved our hands. He liked the Methodist way. A verse you sit down. A verse you stand up. A verse you sit down. You know, on the bulletin, out by noon. He didn't like charismatics, But Jean, you know, was asked to preach his funeral. So he's on his deathbed and he raises it up. He said, who is it that's preaching my funeral when I die? I said, you asked Gene to do it, Daddy. He said, that's right, that's right, I did. Laid back down, near death. Raises up again a little while later and said, "'Who's preaching my funeral?' I said, "'Jean is, Daddy. You asked Jean.'" He said, "'That's right, that's right.'" And then he raised up and said, "'I want my Methodist preacher to say a few words.'" I said, "'You've told us that. We've got it all lined up. Just lay down, Daddy.'" So a little bit later, he raised up and said, "'Who is it that's preaching my funeral?' And I said, "'Jean is, Daddy.'" And he was about to lay down again and he raised back up. He said, well, for God's sake, tell him to keep it short and sweet. And I said, Daddy, why don't you just die? Just die, Daddy, just die and let us plan your funeral. Just driving us crazy about his funeral. So you see, all this stuff's going on and we preached to you about harvest, your women of destiny, your anointed women. But you just go home, you got all these details. you just got all this stuff, bald spots, people, unforgiveness, things that happen. And you've got to stay focused, women. And so in the middle of the night, you raise your head off the pillow, and you say, now God, what was it you said back there in Women of the Word, and Albany, and how's it ever going to work? And God looks at you and just says, Die, just die, just die, and let me handle details. Because God, who has begun a good work, knows absolutely how to carry you from beginning to end. One last thing, and then I'm going to minister to you. Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. So Paul ends by telling us sometimes we're just abounding. Things are really going good. Thank God for those seasons. I like good seasons, don't you? When everything just abounds. And then he goes on to say that there are just sometimes that we are abased. Now you've got to learn, women, how to press through seasons. See, this is what God is teaching us. There are seasons. Ecclesiastes said this, that some seasons are better than others. Sometimes there's crying, sometimes there's laughing. Sometimes things are dead, sometimes things are alive. Sometimes uh, we are silent, sometimes we talk. Fourteen opposites, and Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us that there are seasons. And when Paul said, I've learned to be content, he really didn't mean contented like happy. The word means sufficient. I've just learned to be sufficient in God. In other words, when the going gets rough, I've just learned how to let God get me through those rough times. Because a lot of you will just give up in the rough times. You know, things just happen and somebody didn't do it the way you thought you wanted it done and before you know it, you're out of the church where God intends you to be to grow you up. Just because something happened. Or husbands will do something and He acted in a way that you didn't think. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, the season changes. And I've been through seasons. I've been through good times. I've been through bad times. I've just been through seasons. I didn't float in here. I've really had to fight. I've had to. I wanted to be a woman who lived in health. And I've had to fight to do that. Uh, I I made up my mind, this is the kind of woman I want to be over there, and I've really fought to come to that end. But there were seasons. And Paul is saying, I'm not gonna let life determine if I'm a victim or a victor. I'm deciding right up front, regardless of the season, I'll keep going, and I'm gonna come to the end where God wants me to go. Praise God. Rough seasons can't interfere. Bad times won't interfere. We just have to keep going with God in the name of the Lord. Now, I feel there are tremendous giftings. I feel there are tremendous anointings in here. I, I think you are indeed, and if I can get this off, I'm going to come out there. You are indeed, you know, women of, of destiny. But you've got to handle the good times, the bad times, the smooth times, the rough times. Now, how many of you are in here today and you would say to me, I'm just going through a real rough time and I need help. Would you stand up? Just stand up where you are. Thank you, Lord. Would you come up here? Just going through a bad time. Just a bad season. The Lord said to tell you that you know of your own self that there are times when you look out of a window.